At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help. So you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Life's better with an auto policy from American Family Insurance. No matter what dreams you're driving towards. That's because our expert agents will make you feel totally protected with the right auto coverage at the right price. You'll also save up to 23% when you bundle auto with home. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. You're listening to DNA ID. Brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. This episode of DNA ID is sponsored by GEDmatch, the free genealogy website where you can learn about your ancestry and find family members you're related to through DNA, not to mention help catch the bad guys we talk about in every episode. On Sunday, September 12, 1976, around 10.20 a.m., a 911 caller reported seeing a body near the back gate of Lorraine Park Cemetery. This was in the 5600 block of Dogwood Road in the Woodlawn area of Baltimore County, Maryland. Arriving promptly, investigating officers found the body of a female lying 18 feet from the cemetery access road in a wooded area. The clothed body was wrapped in a white sheet. The young woman in the sheet had suffered a violent death. The coroner determined she had been strangled with a ligature. Her hands were tied behind her back with medical bandage tied in intricate knots. Rope around her wrists led up her back and encircled her throat. She had two bandanas tied around her face, one blue and one orangish. Oddly, the orange bandana had eye and nose holes cut in it. The young woman had been beaten and raped before death. The rape was so violent that blood from her wounds had stained the victim's pants. The unidentified young woman was wearing beige Levi's corduroys and a white short-sleeved shirt. She had on distinctive brown, maroon, and cream striped knee socks. A leather moccasin believed to be hers was located near the body. Police do not want to reveal where or whether the other shoe was found. She had a one-and-a-half-inch scar on her left thigh and small scars on her knees. A set of what appeared to be the initials J.P., but could have been J.B. or other similar letters, 
crudely tattooed on the shoulder of the unidentified young woman were a clue, but police had no luck in matching them to anyone. She was still wearing a distinctive necklace. It was made of rawhide, with a large turquoise bead encircling the rope. She had pierced ears. Her age was estimated as late teens to early twenties, but of course, no one knew for sure. She was white with an olive complexion, five foot eight inches tall, and weighed a hundred and fifty-nine pounds, with shoulder-length brown hair and eyes. An autopsy determined that she had type O blood. Her teeth were not straight. Three molars had been extracted, and the remaining five exhibited fillings. A toxicology test detected a toxic amount of chlorpromazine in her system. Chlorpromazine is an antipsychotic medication that police suspected had been used to tranquilize the victim, or that she possibly was a mental patient. The sheet she was wrapped in was the type used by institutions like hospitals. Police believed she had been killed elsewhere and dumped near the Woodlawn Area Cemetery. This theory was bolstered by a woman who came forward and reported that she and her son had been driving to church that morning at 9:20 a.m., and they'd seen a blue Ford Econoline van parked on the side of the road, right where the body was found. Just a note: many reports say the van was white, which was incorrect. Police suspected that the driver of the van had dumped the body off the busy roadway and driven off. The victim had been dead for less than 24 hours. She became known as Woodlawn Jane Doe. There were some very intriguing leads that indicated Woodlawn Jane Doe was connected to Massachusetts. In her pocket were two keys attached together by a safety pin, one of which was manufactured by Ilco in Fitchburg, Mass. Of course, police didn't know whose house the keys opened, but there was more connection to the Bay State. In an odd set of circumstances, two large white twenty-five pound seed bags were found with Woodlawn Jane Doe, and one was pulled over her head. These were a very important clue that would guide the investigation. The bags were printed with the words "Farm Bureau Association Grass Seed, Lexington, Mass.", and they were sold only in the towns of Waltham, Rochdale, Lowell, South Weymouth, and Greenfield in Massachusetts. The manufacturer by Bemis Bag Company in Buffalo, New York, had been discontinued in 1974. A small piece of one of the bags was also found inside Woodlawn Jane Doe's throat. Sketches were prepared of the young woman so police could circulate them in hopes that someone in the area would recognize her. Hundreds of people called in tips. One woman called in and was certain that the sketch resembled her missing relative, but it wasn't her. Woodlawn Jane Doe sat in the Baltimore County morgue for thirty years. Periodic pushes by investigators to identify her all hit brick walls. The case was worked hard over the years, with investigators distributing flyers to dancers and bartenders in an area called the Block, posting flyers with Woodlawn Jane Doe's sketch around the Fells Point region, checking fingerprint records with law enforcement agencies across the country, and comparing dental records with missing persons reports. And passing out information about Woodlawn Jane Doe at local hospitals, clinics, and jails. They entered her information into the Doe Network in 2003. For those of you who don't know, the Doe Network was founded in 1999 as a website compiling missing persons cases. It now operates as an all-volunteer nonprofit that provides assistance to law enforcement in identifying John and Jane Does and matching them with missing persons reports. Finally, the TV show America's Most Wanted highlighted 
Bedford, Jane Doe's case in 2010. In 2006, the body was subjected to updated testing. Semen was detected. I haven't been able to find any more on this, but I'm keeping everything crossed that a profile was developed from the semen. In 2015, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, or NICMEC, arranged and paid for sophisticated testing of microscopic pollen particles found on Woodlawn Jane Doe's clothing. The testing was performed by Andrew Lawrence of U.S. Customs and Border Patrol. I learned a new word from a 2016 Baltimore Sun article. Lawrence was one of only about five forensic palynologists in the world. A palynologist is someone who studies pollen, grains, and spores. Lawrence used a vacuum to isolate and then test the particles to determine their origin. They turned out to be cedar and mountain hemlock pollen, which was a unique mix. This from the Baltimore Sun, quote, Cedar and mountain hemlock pollen are found together in only two places, the New York Botanical Garden and the Arnold Arboretum, which straddles the Boston neighborhoods of Jamaica Plain and Roslindale, end quote. Another connection to Massachusetts. Also in 2015, investigators received a very specific tip about who Woodlawn Jane Doe was. A caller reported that her name was Jasmine, she went by Jazzy, and she had moved with her family from Puerto Rico to Forbes Street in a specific neighborhood in Jamaica Plain, which could explain the JP initials on her shoulder, if that's what they were. The tipster also said that Woodlawn Jane Doe attended Catholic schools and had relatives by the names of Blanco, Tito, and Santana. This tip unfortunately led investigators down the wrong path. Baltimore County Detective David Jacoby, the lead investigator at the time, told the Baltimore Sun, quote, There are now people out there going through yearbooks from the high schools in Boston, end quote. Investigators distributed flyers in Boston Catholic churches and canvassed the neighborhood the tipster had mentioned, Hyde Square. Nothing. Today, we want to tell you about how you can get involved in solving some of these cases that you've been hearing about on our show. Many of you are probably familiar with GEDmatch. I mention it in pretty much every episode. It's a free genealogy website where you can learn about your ancestry and find family members you're related to through DNA, even if you've tested using different companies. It's also one of the sites used by law enforcement to solve the Golden State Killer case in 2018, and since then has been involved in 500 or more other cases. It is also not used for just violent crimes like murders and sexual assault, but also for identifying John and Jane Doe's and exonerating innocent people who were put away for the wrong reasons. If you've already done a DNA test with a direct-to-consumer testing company like 23andMe, Ancestry, MyHeritage, or FamilyTree DNA, it's easy to upload to GEDmatch and help law enforcement with genetic tips and leads. I'm going to walk you through it. First, go to the company website where you have had your DNA testing done and download your profile as a DNA data file. Next, go to GEDmatch and upload the file to GEDmatch for processing. Make sure to choose to opt in for law enforcement searches that cover violent crime and missing persons cases. If you want to focus on being helpful to finding identities for unidentified bodies, you can just opt out, which will exclude your profile from violent crime case searches. Within 24 hours of this upload, you'll have access to a suite of DNA tools, allowing you to delve deeper into your results. Compare your DNA to everyone on the site or to a specific person, or find matches that are related to two different people, plus much more. 
Some people think that law enforcement gets access to your raw DNA when you upload your profile. This is not true. Law enforcement does not get to see your raw DNA data when you consent to allow your data to be included in those types of searches. They have the same access as any other civilian user of GEDmatch. They can only see your name or GEDmatch alias if you've entered one, email address, and how much shared DNA there is between you and the unknown profile uploaded. GEDmatch is a highly secure site built with consumer security in mind, where users are in control of information they upload and can delete their data whenever they want. By joining the GEDmatch community, you can help see violent criminals brought to justice, missing people located, and unidentified bodies given a name. Join GEDmatch today. Make sure you use GEDmatch.com slash DNAID. That's GEDmatch.com slash DNAID. In 2016, on the 40th anniversary of the date Woodlawn Jane Doe was found, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children created and released a 3D facial reconstruction of Woodlawn Jane Doe. Though a very detailed likeness, it failed to generate the leads the police hoped for. Finally, there was news. A September 15, 2021 news release from Baltimore County authorities announced that using funding provided by NCMEC, they had worked with Bodie Technology to conduct forensic genealogy on DNA taken from Woodlawn Jane Doe. Baltimore County investigators had provided a blood sample from Woodlawn Jane Doe to Othram, Inc., Othram prepared a DNA profile from the blood that was suitable for forensic genealogy, and Bodie did the work. And it was a success. As reported by the Washington Post, a cousin of Woodlawn Jane Doe named Shannon McAdoo in Pennsylvania had analyzed her own genetic heritage by testing her DNA using a commercial kit from 23andMe. She uploaded her results into one of the open-source databases, Family Tree DNA and GEDmatch. It has not been reported which one. And the genealogist at Bodie, upon entering Woodlawn Jane Doe's DNA into the open-source database, was able to see that Shannon was a cousin of Woodlawn Jane Doe. Two other relatives of Woodlawn Jane Doe were also in the databases. Using that information, the genealogist was able to narrow down the identity of Woodlawn Jane Doe to the three children of John Edward Federoff and his wife, Nobuko. One of the children was a female, and she was unaccounted for in any public records since 1975, when she had last attended high school. The timing and age matched. Detectives tracked down the Federoff family and learned that their daughter had been missing since 1975. Photos of her produced by the family strongly resembled the sketches and images of Woodlawn Jane Doe prepared over the years. Several of the Federoff family members gave voluntary DNA samples for comparison against that of Woodlawn Jane Doe. The testing of the samples showed that, indeed, she was Margaret Federoff. Margaret Ann Federoff was born on December 27, 1959, to John Edward Federoff and his wife Nabucco. Nabucco was of Japanese heritage, but Margaret does not appear to have any Asian features in photographs, and neither the pathologist nor the police guessed that she was half Asian. The family lived in Alexandria, Virginia, 50 miles from where Margaret was found. She was 16 when she went missing in 1975 and was a student at Hayfield Secondary School. Her brother, Edward Federoff, said she was rebellious, hung out with kids who smoked pot, and usually dated boys who were as much as four years older than she was. 
And Margaret often left home without telling anyone, ending up at a friend's house or in other neighborhoods. It was to the point that she was described as a habitual runaway. The police routinely had to track her down, or her father had to extract her and bring her home. When she left for the last time, her family reported her missing, but it's easy to see how that report would be received by police as a non-emergency. I'm reading an excerpt here from the October 2021 Washington Post article on how Margaret was identified. Edward Federoff, Margaret Federoff's younger brother, said she began running away when she was 12. She was rebellious and constantly in trouble. When she got placed in foster homes, she ran away from those too. Then she would beg to come home and my parents would let her come back home and then she'd run away again, Edward said in the interview. So it was just a revolving door. In the late summer of 1975, Margaret had run away again, but this time was different. A week went by and she hadn't returned. Then a month. The family hoped she would one day turn up on someone's birthday or at a family holiday. Those hopes, spread out over months and then years, faded as time passed. They suspected the worst. Margaret's family always hoped that she would come walking through the front door, but as the years passed, they acknowledged that that was not a likely outcome. Despite all the publicity over the years, the Federoffs had never heard of the case of the unidentified young woman known as Woodlawn Jane Doe. Even though it's just 50 miles from Alexandria, where the family lived, Baltimore is in a different state, with different TV stations, newspapers, and radio stations. It was the 70s, NamUs didn't yet exist, and there was no internet for families of missing persons to scour or post on social media. Margaret remained missing even though she had been found a year after she left home. This from the Baltimore Sun's 2021 article about Margaret's identity being restored to her, quote, when police officers showed up at Edward Federoff's job and said they wanted to talk about a murder investigation, he knew exactly what they were talking about. Then they showed him a photo. Quote, as soon as I saw it, I immediately knew it was her in my mind. I remember her as when I last saw her. She never grew up in my mind. Baltimore County police are now working to figure out who killed Margaret. They are looking into the people she knew and trying to reconstruct her timeline. This is complicated because we don't know where Margaret was in the year between when she was last seen by her family in 1975 and when she was killed in the fall of 1976. Her family has told investigators that they have no ties to Massachusetts, despite all the indications that Margaret spent time there. Her brother Ed tells me that she had been to Baltimore before, and he wonders if she went there and ran across someone from Massachusetts who ended up killing her. Before she got her name back, Margaret was the oldest unidentified murder victim in Baltimore County. Anyone who may have information about the case of Margaret Federoff is asked to contact Baltimore County detectives at 410-307-2020. This is the first of many Doe ID episodes I will be bringing you. These short episodes covering the identification of John and Jane Doe's using forensic genealogy will air every other week, alternating with full-length DNA ID episodes. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. If you'd like to listen to the show ad-free and help support the show in the process, please head over to patreon.com slash DNA ID. And if you're interested in some fun DNA ID merch, visit the store at 
customizegirl.com slash s slash DNA ID podcast. To contact the show, please email us at DNA ID podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at DNA ID podcast on Instagram at DNA ID podcast on Twitter or on Facebook at facebook.com slash DNA ID podcast. Finally, if you want to visit our website, go to dnaidpodcast.com. You'll be able to get all the episodes of the show, leave comments on episodes that I can respond to, and you can even leave voicemails. You'll get all the latest news about the show and important updates. Find links to our social media, merch, and a lot more. It's really your one-stop shop for everything DNA ID. DNA ID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Betancourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, and Beyond Bizarre True Crime.